Bienvenue, mes amis. Join me in a cup of tea and a story. Excellent. Today I've unshelved a few tales, most old and one new, and was delighted to see how perfectly they fit together. I do hope you enjoy learning new recipes. Food history is, perhaps, the most elegant of all the anthropological pursuits. It involves piecing together succulent mounds of oysters, documenting the evolution of the humble loaf of bread, and decoding all the complex flavors of a royal medieval feast. Anthropologists get to recreate warm winter stews cooked in kettles on the hearth, and mock turtle soup served in the bowls of middle-class Victorians. What a wonderful job! Except that, when it comes to the culinary anthropologists, there are two primary resources they use to reveal all about our ancestors' diets. Middens and coprolite. You see, once upon a time not terribly long ago, a certain group of archaeologists found themselves elbow-deep in the middens of Europe, looking for definitive proof of humanity's dietary history. A midden if you're unfamiliar with the term, is an old garbage heap containing food items. It was not in those middens, however, that these particular archaeologists found what they were looking for, but in a preserved barrel of Danish coprolite. That's right, coprolite. Go ahead, look it up. I'll wait here a moment. So, it was with great glee that Maria Elizabeth Lauridsen and her excavation team in the Danish city of Odense on Funen dug through a site in Wilhelm Werner's Square. They found several 700-year-old barrels there, and expecting to discover all kinds of treasures inside, they hastily opened the receptacles, only to find themselves awash in coprolite. It turned out the barrels had been retired from the transport industry and turned into toilets. Nevertheless, excited by the admittedly noxious find, Maria and her archaeological team got to work examining the 700-year-old poop and found plenty with which to fill the records. Here's a sample of foods that have so far been analyzed from the ancient people droppings. Raspberries, apples, Figs, wild strawberries, elderberries, mustard seeds, bran, and corn cockle seeds. Considering how it is usually assumed the Viking and early Christian Danes made do mostly with smoked herring, bread, and a couple of root vegetables, these particular findings show a stunning array of vitamin-packed fruits. Researchers expect the poisonous corn cockle seeds found their way into the latrines thanks to their habit of growing alongside cereal crops. At any rate, they were only consumed accidentally and at low levels. Lastly, the archaeological team identified moss, leather, and small pieces of fabric in each of the barrels. If you don't think those items sound particularly appetizing, that's because they were used to wipe a bit to the south. That's not a pun. In 14th century Italy, fruits were somewhat less common at the supper table. Instead, one would generally find a leg of boiled mutton, carefully crafted rice flour pasta, barley polenta, sausage, 
cheese, and perhaps an early form of pizza pie topped with eel. The variety of cheeses at citizens' disposal was richly varied and regional, while eggs were commonly used for making frittatas and omelets. Olive oil was then, as now, the most popular form of cooking fat when it came to frying vegetables, marinating or preserving meats and fish, and dressing fresh salads. Of course, as perfectly appetizing as this all sounds, the wealthier Italians feasted regularly on fattened dormice. In the centuries before Europeans even knew the New World existed, and before France was considered the master kitchen of the Western world, Italy held that revered post. It was a time before marinara sauce, chili oil, and bruschetta, although Italian chefs were no less ingenious in their culinary exploits. Here's a recipe for stuffed dormice translated from Apicus de Re Cochinaria. It is stuffed with a forcemeat of pork and small pieces of dormouse meat trimmings, all pounded with pepper, nuts, herb of lesser, broth. Put the dormouse thus stuffed in an earthen casserole, roast it in the oven, or boil it in the stockpot. The average medieval Italian cottage relied on its hearth as space for cooking in a variety of ways. A kettle and spit turner filled the fireplace and allowed meal preparers to create rich stews, soups, and roasted meats. To bake bread, a rustic, brown, grainy dough would be placed directly into the fire inside a cooking pot. The kitchens of the nobility were hardly more complex, with a sturdy-legged pot in place of the smaller, cottage-style kettle. For food storage, Italians made use of several rudimentary techniques such as drying, salting, smoking, and pickling. Prepared and unprepared foods were stored in clay pots and jars, but perhaps the most innovative form of food preservation from medieval Italians was dried pasta, which could be stored for long periods in dry conditions without turning sour. The dormice occupied their own special clay jars, which they inhabited until such a point when the household deemed them fat enough to devour. Once South American ingredients made their way into Italy, classic dishes such as lasagna, formerly made with layered pasta, cheese, and spices, truly found their footing. Though initially considered poisonous due to an unfortunate pairing with lead-bearing pewter dishware, and for its resemblance to nightshade, taste for the tomato eventually did catch on. Though pizza wouldn't be invented until the 19th century, it's obvious that the more adventurous Italian home cooks and chefs had no problem frying up and eating the fruits that dangled from their decorative tomato plants and using them in sauces. In 1693, the first published recipe for basic marinara sauce appeared in Lo Scalco alla Moderna, and the application of these simple cooking instructions has changed Italian cuisine fundamentally. Pizza, pasta, bread plates, antipasto, and of course the much-loved lasagna finally gained that zesty kick that no one knew they were missing. 
Of course, as integral as the tomato is to modern Italian cooking, it wasn't only the South American ingredient that gained a strong foothold in the old world. Maize, squash, and chilies provided cooks with the inspiration and flavors they needed to overcome their dependence on boiled and roasted meats. In the next centuries, dishes like polenta, honey-roasted squash, and salads with grilled habaneros changed the primary focus of mealtime from mutton, dormice, lamb, pork, or fish to a healthier mix of meats, vegetables, and pasta. In London, this international city had access to exotic foodstuffs from all over Europe and the Near East, which meant that French and Italian wines, as well as Ottoman and Byzantine saffron, cloves, ginger, cinnamon, and galangal, graced the plates, and then the bowels, of city dwellers of all classes. Recipes such as animal blood jelly, and all four cow's stomachs chopped up with hooves, bones, and some lovely cider, delighted medieval palates that were decidedly different from those of most modern Londoners. According to Peter Breers in his book, Cooking and Dining in Medieval England, there is a vast difference in the potency of the individual spices as imported up to around the late 19th century and those which we use today. The former were stored and shipped in poor conditions for several months at the least, usually being adulterated on the way, while the latter now arrive pure and at full strength. Anyone who has had their face totally anesthetized by a single slice of Georgian gingerbread baked with the original quantity of cloves fully appreciates this fact. Cuisine from the British Isles during the Middle Ages is usually mentioned in passing as more of a joke than a real piece of culinary history. Although ancient recipes may not appeal to modern palates, the truth is that the medieval British had access to some great ingredients. Fish and seafood were abundant, which made recipes like the following oysters in gravy quite popular. Shell the oysters and boil them in wine and in their own broth. Strain the broth through a cloth. Take blanched almonds, grind them and draw them up with the broth, and bind it with rice flour, and put the oysters therein. Cast in powdered ginger, sugar, and mace. Boil this not too thickly, and serve it forth. That recipe translation comes from the Middle English Recipes website, which is definitely worth a look. The most valuable piece of literary evidence of culinary habits of the medieval residents of the British Isles is the 14th century recipe book, Form of Curie. Though neither quantities nor temperatures and cooking times are indicated, this ancient tome gives us insight into the ingredients and methods used in medieval British cooking. Like most of Europe's peasantry, Britons relied on kettles, warm stones in the hearth, and precious few dishes and clay cooking pots to prepare their meals. Two of the most iconic utensils of the time were the mortar and pestle, as these allowed cooks to grind spices and turn solid foods into pastes. As 14th century Britons were fairly obsessed with balancing their humors, paste was an integral part of most meals. 
You see, according to Greek philosophy, there are four humors in our world. Water, air, earth, and fire. From Henry VIII's court right down into the villages and farms of England's, Scotland's, and Ireland's countryside, these humors were considered the most important aspect of medicine and cuisine. As the king's physicians treated his various maladies with plasters and pastes, designed to balance his moist, dry, warm, or cold humors, so his cooks balanced their ornate recipes. Pastes and oils, heavy in spices, were further thickened with pieces of rye bread, while almonds were a staple no household wanted to do without. Potatoes would replace a variety of ingredients in medieval British cooking, perhaps foremost the ubiquitous almond. Unfortunately, like their friend the tomato, potatoes took a little while to catch on, particularly given that Elizabeth Tudor's cooks mistakenly prepared the leaves and stems in an introductory banquet instead of the tubers. These toxic dishes made royal guests ill and did nothing to advance the potato into European menus. Queen Elizabeth I promptly banned the offensive vegetable from her court. However, it did eventually gain tremendous footing across modern Britain and Ireland, once explorers explained how to eat the bulbous root vegetable and not the poisonous green bits. Soon, the humble potato salad emerged, and a version of it would persevere for more than 400 years. To make the original salad, chunks of the tuber were boiled in wine or a combination of water and vinegar. Individual households mixed these softened vegetable pieces with various cooked vegetables, including onions and leeks. True to their culinary times, they spiced the potatoes liberally in a variety of imported flavors like cinnamon and cloves. Moving now in an easterly direction, our food history journey makes a stop in Namur, Belgium. It was here in 1996 that an urban development project unearthed some more 700-year-old bowel movements sealed up in ancient barrels buried four feet deep. Paleomicrobiologists arrived soon afterwards to take coprolite samples and run tests at their research unit on infectious and emerging tropical diseases in Marseille, France. Virology teams discovered a plethora of bacteria-loving viruses present in the guts of those medieval Belgians, who were likely French or Burgundian vassals at the time. Shockingly, this coprolite showed a higher prevalence of antibiotic-resistance bacteria than modern stool samples. Scientists have concluded this must mean that 14th-century Belgians also had intestines full of antibiotic-producing bacteria that potentially has been lost to modern humans because of more sanitary eating conditions. It's a fascinating field of study, this history of food, and one that involves heartwarming scenes such as stacks of old cookbooks, steaming kettles and cauldrons, and sometimes, when the conditions are just right, another barrel of coprolite. Now I can't hold my hunger a second longer. I must go and tend to my own meal. The Lycoi caught someone trespassing today, and, well, 
something, of course, and it has been roasting in the fire, dripping juicily for hours. It's time to call the family to dinner. Care to join us? Well, that's the pity. Until next time, good night. If you'd like to help History Obscura remain in the light of the day, or dark of the night, please do consider dropping by the show's Patreon and signing up for one of our three support tiers. If you can't find the page by searching through Patreon, just type in www.patreon.com forward slash History Obscura. The first costs just $1 a month, and that's for the Frank and Tito's Memorial Club. Option two is the weekly bonus club, which is $5 a month. Join me here for extra weekly minisodes, where I will be reading excerpts from the newspaper archives of 200 years ago. From crime, accidents, the just plain ludicrous, and a selection of classified ads, and my favorite, obituaries. Finally, for the diehard of you, the loyalty program with gifts. The $25 a month club gets you everything mentioned previously as well as a bizarre, one-of-a-kind gift every three months. Also, are you a fan of a good sci-fi novel? Because if so, you can also support me and therefore the show by purchasing a copy of Letters to Earth or the sequel, Mission to Mars, via Endless Ink Books. Also, check out the Earth's Final Chapter books and artwork while perusing Endless Inc.'s virtual shelves. This indie publisher is completely DIY, not affiliated with Amazon or any commercial book vendors, for reasons of creative freedom, fair wages, and sustainability. And what's more, they have been a constant supporter of this podcast, so please show them some love. They're on Twitter and Facebook. Finally, you can donate to the show via buymeacoffee.com forward slash history obscura. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs>